one of the things that has been in the news just pretty pretty much the last two or three or four weeks is this thing called AI. Y'all know what AI is? Um, artificial intelligence. And so everybody is sounding out about is it dangerous or what's, what's the direction? You know, AI is, is this idea that uh, our, our jobs are going to be replaced by robots and uh, computers are going to start thinking and they're going to be even smarter than we are. And if we're not careful, AI is going to take over the world. And uh, so it was interesting that I was reading an article this week by a guy who um, went on Chat GPT, which is a kind of a mini AI that you can get uh, an app and you can put it on your phone or your computer and all that. And so he was having a conversation with, with AI and he asked the question, he says, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And I was curious because that's what we've been talking about. What does it mean to be a disciple? And here's what ChatGPT said, AI, okay? To be a disciple of Jesus means to be a follower of Jesus and try to emulate his teachings and way of life. In the New Testament, the term disciple refers to a follower of Jesus, uh, followers of Jesus who were trained by him to spread his message and carry on his work. Disciples of Jesus are called to follow him, believe in his message, and strive to live their lives according to his teaching. This often involves a commitment to living a life of service, compassion, and love, as well as a willingness to share the message of Jesus with others. I thought, well, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good definition of what does it mean to be a disciple. Uh, but there's much more to it than that. And that's kind of what we've been studying over the last couple of weeks and then again today. And so what I've been trying to do is kind of help you to set the historical background to understand the calling of Jesus to followers to be his disciples. And as we look at the gospel records, one of the things that we immediately note is that there are three stages or three phases to Jesus' calling of those disciples, to, uh, of those followers to be disciples. <clears throat> and so stage one is that of come and see, come and see. And uh, that's found in, in primarily in John chapters 1 through 4, and it really was about a four or five month period. This is, you know, this is the time when they followed Jesus as opportunity presented itself, and they were coming to know Jesus, his character, his servanthood, uh, his mission, what he was all about. Then you come to stage number two, which was come and follow, and this is, was a period of about 10 or 11 months or so. It involved about 70 to 100 people who had followed Jesus consistently. And so through the teachings and the example of Jesus, they came to understand the priority of the absolutes of Scripture and the importance of community and the task of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world, of building the kingdom of God. So as we look today, we're going to look at the third phase in the call of Jesus to his followers to be a disciple. We're going to see, um, really, uh, what I want to do is, guess, let me start by setting the stage to help you understand the transition from stage one to stage, uh, excuse me, stage two to stage three. Now, I realize that all of you, and I hope that, that I can say this, understand that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, are not 
full-blown biographies of Jesus, but instead they're snapshots of his life and of his teachings. In fact, John said this in John 21, verse 25. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world would not contain the books that would be written. So from the narrative, these snapshots, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, let's see if we can put together a timeline where we can see where that transition from stage two, come and, and, uh, and follow me, to stage three took place. So in Matthew 4, which is really a kind of the stage two era of Jesus' relationship with the disciples, we read the call of Peter and Andrew and of James and John. We also see the calling of, of Matthew. These men were part of this larger group that was following Jesus. And so let's pick up reading in Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. It says that Jesus was going through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So this is phase number two. This would be taking place during those 10 or 11 months, uh, and this is called the come and follow me era <coughs> or phase in, in Jesus' ministry. <coughs> and what Matthew is describing is this tour that Jesus took in his ministry. He's going throughout all the region. He's preaching, he's healing, and so forth. Now, when you get to Matthew's gospel, <coughs> excuse me, one of the things you find out is that Matthew's gospel is divided uh, into sections by five different groups of teaching. So there's some narration of what Jesus did, then there's a teaching section, some more narration, then a teaching. Happens five different times. So this that we just read is that first phase, and then follows a teaching section that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And then following the Sermon on the Mount, picking up again in, in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35, we see this tour of the region continuing. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people... He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. If you look at verse 36 there, you see that Jesus was disturbed at the lostness of the people. And let me give you a, just a short phrase of what he really what he really saw when he looked at the, at the crowds following him. <clears throat> and this is simply that they were a mess. They were a mess. In fact, I looked at 16 different translations of this verse. And listen to these words that, that were used to describe the people as Jesus saw them. Distressed, troubled, confused, bewildered, worried, weary, hurting, harassed, dejected, dispirited, helpless, worn out, aimless, scattered abroad, miserable, fainted. In fact, the Living Bible says their problems were so great and they didn't know what to do or where to go for help. Jesus saw these people in that condition and he said he had compassion on them. 
So how are these people ever to be helped? How are they ever to be reached? Well, his answer was more workers, more people to, to labor in the harvest. And how, do you, how does that occur? In prayer to the Father, the, the Lord of the harvest. And that is exactly what Jesus did. So when you go over to Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, this, this verse is taking place right after Jesus saw the crowds and, and saw their lostness. And it says this, Luke 6, 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. You know, since the solution was prayer, Jesus went off and he spent a very intense night in prayer. And I think for us, that needs to be the starting place for us. If we're going to reach our community, which, just like in Jesus' day, is filled with peer, peer, people who are dispirited, who are broken, who are troubled, who are in anguish, who are, who are lost, they're helpless, the starting place is prayer. And, and we need to pray that God would thrust forth laborers into the harvest, and those laborers would include you and they would include me. That ought to be our starting place. Then look at verse 13 uh, there in Luke chapter 6. He says, and when day came, and that's, you know, he just spent this night in prayer. Verse 13, when day came, he called his disciples to him. That would be the 70, the 120,000, uh, excuse me, the 120 who had been following him. Uh, they were his regular followers, and he chose 12 of them whom he named as apostles. So this is the beginning of stage three, and it's come, be with me. So we've had come and see come and follow, and now come be with me. And here was to be an inner circle of 12 men who would receive additional 24-hour kind of training um, for that task of, of getting into the harvest and harvesting these lost masses. So Luke continues there in, in chapter uh, 6 and verse 14, naming those disciples, Simon, whom he also called uh, Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Thus begins what I'm calling the come and be with me phase. And this is going to be about 20 months of training of these disciples to really reach the world for Jesus Christ. Now, there's a pattern that you see in this. First of all, they were with Jesus, and they watched him do ministry. And then there came a point when he gave them some special assignments to go out and, and proclaim the kingdom. And he was with them, giving them guidance, giving them encouragement, giving them support. But then there came a day when Jesus was gone, and they were there to carry out the ministry without his physical presence. Yes, he was with them in spirit, of course. But they would be ready because the training that they had received from Jesus was exactly what they needed. Now, again, let me just remind you that these men were not the best students of the day. They were just pretty much illiterate, unskilled, untutored fishermen and laborers, and even a, a revolutionary, Simon the Zealot. Um, and from the world standpoint, um, they're a very insignificant company of disciples. But they were chosen by, by Jesus, who had for them an amazing life and death mission. And what I want you to see is these 12 guys were a direct answer to Jesus' prayer during that night of, of praying for workers to be 
sent forth into the harvest. Here, here is God's answer, these 12 guys. And uh, they were to work in the harvest, working unselfishly, working humbly in the fields that were white unto harvest. And so there was no mistake in their choosing, not even Judas Iscariot. That wasn't a mistake, okay? So what was their purpose? Why were they chosen? What were they to be doing? Look at Mark chapter 3 and verse 13 and following. It says, and he went up, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain, and he summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him, and he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. There in verse 14, there's two purposes for these disciples. One is so that they would be with him. And that really is, that's relationship. They were to be with him in relationship. That was the important thing. He called these men to be with him as his companions, as well as students or, or disciples. Now, let me remind you again of the, uh, really the, the first century pattern of discipleship in Jerusalem. Remember, to become a disciple, you attach yourself to a teacher or to a rabbi, memorize the rabbi's words, you learn the rabbi's ways of ministry, you imitate the, the, the teacher's life and his character, and then that fifth thing, then you raise up your own disciples. Well, that is seen in that second part of that responsibility. Not only were they to be with him in relationship, but also he was to send them out, and that was responsibility. So those disciples, had a, they were in relationship, but they also had a responsibility. In fact, go back to Luke 6, 13. It says, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. That word apostle is, is crucial there because it means sent ones. It means one who was sent out. It means a person who has a special charge and special authority to go and, and act on behalf of the one doing the sending. Uh, you, you realize that Jesus spoke Aramaic, and the Aramaic form used here in this passage uh, it's of Jesus talking really points to the fact that these guys were sent out with a definite charge, and they were clothed with authority, and so therefore they could speak and they could act in the name and the authority of the one who sent them, Jesus Christ. Uh, remember in Matthew 4, what did Jesus say? Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Exactly. These were those who were going to catch others, who were going to draw others into the kingdom of God, into a, <coughs> excuse me, a redeeming relationship with Jesus Christ. So this is stage number three, come be with me. There is, however a very subtle shift that begins to take place in the relationship between Jesus and these disciples. Uh, because as the disciples are with him 24-7, Jesus now slowly begins to speak, giving warnings concerning come, upcoming persecution. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves, but beware for you will be handed over to the, in the court to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. And then uh, verse 22 there in, in Matthew 10. All nations will hate you because you are my followers, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. <coughs> now here's a really daunting truth. The prospects for the future of these disciples includes persecution and even death because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ. Now, I think the disciples are kind of troubled by that, you know. Is this what we signed up for? 
I mean, think about it. If, if does following Jesus Christ entail this as well, persecution and even death? Uh, notice Jesus' res response to their unspoken questions in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 24 and, and 25. He said, students are not greater than their teacher, and slaves are not greater than their master. Students are, like to, are to be like their teacher. Slaves are to be like their masters. And since I, the master of the household, have been called the prince of demons, the members of my household will be called by even worse names. See, Jesus told his disciples that his purpose was not to bring peace on the earth, but to bring a sword. And so the message of the king, kingship, the, the lordship of Jesus Christ, is really one which always and will always lead to a, a very violent reaction by those who don't believe. I mean, why are Christians so hated in the world? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Because, folks, we are threats to unbelievers. I mean, the Christian faith calls people's actions and motives into question. They stand condemned for their sinful nature and for their sinful actions. And so your life as a Christian serves as an indictment. It's a warning of the coming days of judgment. And generally, folks, people don't like to be told they're wrong and that they're headed for judgment, right? And so thus Christianity is hated by those who are not Christians. And if we're going to represent Jesus Christ in this world, and that is a part of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, then we need to understand and we need to accept the fact that we will be treated in the very same way that Jesus was treated by this hostile world. In fact, Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, asked them, says, if you're going to follow me and become like me, what makes you think the world is going to treat you any different than it treated me? Why do you think you're going to escape the upcoming persecution and, yes, even the possibility of, of death? If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will persecute you. Then comes the, probably the gravest, gravest words yet in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. If your love for father or mother, uh, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. So with these words, Jesus is now introducing a whole new concept of what it means to follow him. It's not just come and see. It's not just come and follow me. It's not just come be with me. But now the stakes have, have been raised. The, the calling of these men has changed radically. And we enter what I call a fourth stage, and that is come and die. Come and die. What does it mean to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What it really means is to move progressively from come and see and come and die. And what do I mean by come and die? Well, first Jesus says he's demanding a loyalty that supersedes any other loyalty in our life. That our love for him, in contrast to our love for family, ought to look like a love-hate relationship, that we hate our family because we love him so much. Um, but second, there is a willingness to follow, even if it leads to death, simply because of him, because of Jesus Christ. Over in Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now, the context here is that Jesus has been speaking to the disciples about his impending uh, crucifixion. And I think that really, really was uh, a, a word that brought dismay to the faces of Peter and, and the other disciples. I mean, the, you know, the, the death of the Messiah would have some very serious implications for the disciples, right? And so Peter rebukes Jesus. Yeah, you're not going to die. In his response to Peter, Jesus kind of broadens the implications of this world. He says discipleship includes the possibility of death for those who would follow. You know, in our day and time, we've kind of blunted the force of, of this, these verses. When we talk about self-denial, we kind of think of things like Lent, where we're going to give up chocolate cake, you know. Um, or when we talk about cross-bearing, you know, you know, my aunt drives me crazy, but I guess she, that's my cross to bear. What I want you to know is that Jesus meant much more than this. Don't water down the implication of, of these verses. These words of Jesus are about literal death, that they were following a condemned man to his execution with the distinct possibility that they too would die. See, there's risk involved in following and being a disciple. Um, there's potential martyrdom. So don't take Jesus' words as a metaphor. He meant them uh, really as a, to his disciples as a literal warning. He expected that many of his disciples would be killed because of their loyalty to his cause. And most of them were. You see, for the disciples, following Jesus meant risk. Meant risk. They were called to the risky business of following Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means a willingness on our part to embrace risk. It means moving out of our comfort zone. It means becoming more than just a Sunday morning only follower. It means more than just adhering to a set of beliefs and some religious practices. It means to embrace the risky business of one who was so radical that he was put to death by the majority because they didn't understand him at all. So being a fully functioning Christian, folks, is risky business. And what I want you to know that around the world today, you know, May 21st, 2023, hundreds of people today will suffer physical persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Every week, there are reports that come from somewhere in this world of people who have been murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, this is risky business. And yet, this is what Jesus calls us to. Look at verse 24 there in this passage. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, folks, that implies a choice, okay? You and I have the choice to follow anyone that we want to. We can do with our lives whatever we, want, whatever we choose. I mean, that's a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We have choice. So you can choose, am I going to follow as a disciple or not? It's, it's your choice, but here's what I want you to understand. If you choose to follow Jesus Christ, if you choose to become a Christian, you must do it on his terms and not on your terms. You've got to do it his way and not your way. 
Verse 24 of the end. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And, and deny there means to disassociate yourself from something. Uh, and here it refers to laying aside our own self-interest in favor of God's interest in our lives. It, it's removing any obstacle in our life to say uh, yes to God. In other words, I no longer have the right to make decisions in my life, to call the shots in my life, to be in charge. I give up my right to the future. I give up my right to uh, decide what to do in the present. No, he's in charge. Uh, this is the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's the boss. He's the sovereign. And I'm simply the servant that says, as you wish, my Lord. Look at verse 24 again. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And again, he's pointing to the literal possibility of death. This is risky business. Now, not every loyal follower of Jesus Christ is going to become an actual martyr. That's, that's not going to happen. But every one of us needs to recognize and accept that possibility, that that could be where Jesus sends us. And even if we're never, you know, uh, asked to follow in death, we certainly know and will know the social stigma of taking up a cross and following after Jesus Christ in our society today. We're going to know that. Following Jesus is risky business. And then verse 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, what he's saying, if you play it safe, you're going to lose. Uh, you're going to lose your reward. You're going to lose the opportunity to bring glory to God. You even lose your immortal soul by saying no to the call of Jesus Christ to be in relationship with him. But to those who do respond, those who, who are the risk takers, those who are willing to lose their life for Christ's sake, those who say yes to Jesus, they're the ones who ultimately are rewarded. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? It really means that I engage in the risky business of living each and every day completely for him. His plans, his way, his glory. It means to take a risk. Here's a question I want you to wrestle with today and maybe this week question all of us need to wrestle wrestle with am i man enough to be a christian am i woman enough to be a christian if god were to suddenly change his call on your life would you be willing to quit your job uproot your family take out the safety net from under you and follow him wherever he would lead? Are you willing to do that? Are you and I willing to risk it all to follow Jesus Christ? In 1904, <clears throat> a man by the name of William Borden graduated uh, from Chicago High School. Uh, William Borden was heir to the Borden family fortune that had been made in the cheese and the dairy uh, industry. And so he was already a wealthy man. And so for his graduation, his parents gave 16-year-old uh, William Borden um, a trip around the world. And as he traveled around the world through Asia and then the Middle East and then Europe, he became very burdened for the hurting in the, <laughs> in the world. He wrote back home and said he had a desire to become a missionary. 
And one of the friends expressed really disbelief that, that, you know, that Bill was going to throw himself away as a missionary. And yet at that time, William Borden wrote in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves. Borden went on to study at, at Yale University, and uh, during his time at Yale University, he wrote in his journal kind of his personal commitment, and it simply said, says this, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. And so during his first semester at Yale, Borden began uh, spending some time in prayer with a small group of freshmen, and soon a movement swept through the Yale campus. And uh, by the end of his uh, freshman year, there were 150 freshmen who were meeting every week for Bible study and prayer. And by the end of his senior year, over 1,000 of the students of the uh, 1,300 student body were meeting every week for Bible study and prayer. After his graduation, William Borden received all sorts of lucrative job offers, and he turned them down. He said no to entering the family business because he was going to be a missionary. And at that point in his Bible, he wrote down two more words, no regrets, or excuse me, no retreats, no retreats. Well, he went on to do his graduate work at Princeton Seminary, and after he finished Princeton Seminary, he sailed for the mission field going to China. And on the way, he stopped in Egypt because he wanted to work with the Muslim uh, population of China, and so he needed to study Arabic. And while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. And in a month, William Borden was dead, 25 years old. Word was cabled back to the United States, and the news of his death literally almost made it in every newspaper in the United States. Was his death just a waste? Not in God's perspective. You see, just before... William Borden passed away, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible under that thing that says no reserves and no re retreats. He wrote the words, no regrets. That, my friends, is what it means to be a risky disciple. No holding back, no going back, no looking back. Will that be said about your life and my life? My prayer is that God make it so, that we'd be that kind of follower of Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer.